0: You are listening to the Equip Podcast. This weekly course seeks to equip our church, and we pray it can help you as well. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. I really appreciate that. Um, kind words, I tell you. I don't, it, it was a, that's, that's a lot. I don't know if I'm going to be able to live up to that. I hope I can. Um, yeah, uh, like Pastor Travis said, we haven't been at um, Rocky Creek for very long, but it's just it's just so amazing to see all the wonderful stuff God's doing here. Um, this church that we're helping out now and then you know switch gears real quick and let's talk theology There's just a lot going on and I'm, I'm loving it I'm loving every bit of it when we first moved here as pastor Travis said it's it's not easy to find a church in the middle of COVID It's not easy to do anything in the middle of COVID but but trying to find a church home is another one of those big difficult things And you know when we came to Rocky Creek, I just thought man the folks here are just so nice everybody remembers my name. Everybody just, now they couldn't remember my wife's name or my kid's name, but everybody knew who I was. I just thought that was the greatest thing. And then Pastor Travis got up and I, oh, okay, well, never mind I'm nothing special. Um, But no, I I really am honored to be a part of this. As as Pastor Travis said, this is just something that um, God, I believe, made me to teach. It's one of those, I don't know if gifting is the right word. I mean, I, I guess it is the right word, but I don't know if it's a If it's a gift for my students or not, it's definitely a gift for me. I get I get so much out of it. Um, And so I'm just I'm just wonderfully honored to be here. Now, I will say this. um, I'm not exactly sure Pastor Travis and I haven't known one another for very long, but I'm wondering why tonight's session was the one that he thought this guy is the one that needs to teach us about human sinfulness. I don't know if it's something I said or if it's something that I did. Um, but no, we, we are going to talk about human sinfulness tonight. And I don't I don't talk as fast as Pastor Travis does. So I'm going to just jump right into it um, because it's a really important topic and, and there's a lot to be said on it um, now. In preparation for tonight, I looked a little bit around just to just kind of get my bearings of what y'all have been talking about up to this point. Um, it's my understanding, like last week, y'all were talking about human nature um, and about the being made in the image of God. And, and uh, the Imago Dei is just such a crucial doctrine. It's so, it's so important to know the nature with which God originally created us, originally made us, to bear His image. I mean, you don't get bigger than that, right? The only thing bigger than the image of God is God right and so to be made in the image of God that is just crucially important not just for previous lesson but for tonight's lesson as well see when when theologians when people talk a lot about sin and human sinfulness a lot of times we use this word the fall you ever heard that term before and and, in reference to human sinfulness we talk about human humans have fallen right we're fallen creatures we have a fallen nature And I don't know, something, something, I just, you should see how weird it is up here. Just something weird came to mind that, um, you know, the the fallenness of humanity. Um, I'm a 90s kid. Anybody else? Like, like we had, we had really good commercials in the 90s, like on TV and stuff. And one of these commercials, like just epic commercials all throughout that decade, um, there was this little device, man, I probably should have looked it up, but there's this little device, it was basically just a button you can hang around people's necks, and you give them to to folks that are sort of invalid and and um, they can't do much for themselves. And so, when whenever they they've fallen, some of y'all know where I'm going with this. Whenever they they fall, and they press this button, and what do they say? I'm falling. I'm falling, and I can't get up. See, some of y'all, some of y'all are laughing, talking about human sinfulness. Look at y'all laughing at this. Those poor old people, and y'all. Are la- I, I, I'm just public confession. It was hilarious. I'm sorry. It was just. And, and and I think part of the reason why it was so funny was because these people, first of all, they were just kind of like relaxed, like nobody falls that gracefully, right? They were just kind of like laying gently on their side, I, I've fallen and I can't get up. But what I noticed was you could always tell where they had fallen from, right? There was a bed or maybe some steps, maybe this lady slipped in the bathtub and the bathtub's behind her. So you could always tell what they had fallen from and maybe that was part of the humor that you know fallen from the steps and falling from the sofa and it's like you know okay they they need some help man that's that's just kind of funny right um but you know the thing about falling is that the danger of the fall always has to be put in context with the height from which you fall right so calling for an emergency that that's that that can be an emergency for someone who's already invalid and they fell out they fell out of the bed that can be a very bad thing but listen, if, if any of you able-bodied people fell out of the bed and you had to call an EMT to help you up, there's something else majorly wrong there. But now, now let's say we're, we're falling. We're falling from what? Falling off a building? Because that's a whole different ballgame, right? You fall from, from steps. You fall down some steps. You may sprain the an ankle. You slip in the tub. You might, you know, mess up a hip or something. Um, you fall from a much higher height. It, be, it becomes a much bigger problem. And so I find that a previous lesson, knowing knowing that you know that we were made in the image of God, falling from that height, makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? You see, I find that most people don't have a problem with this statement. Nobody's perfect. Anybody ever thrown that one out there or heard somebody throw that out there? Well, hey, look, nobody's perfect. As if that goes on to excuse everything that they've just done, right? But what we have to understand, you're right, all of us are fallen, but look look from whence we've fallen we were made in the image of God and you're right nobody's perfect and that's the problem so as we discuss human sinfulness tonight it's just it's so good it's so important that you you align those two things that last time we, we we talked about you talked about the image of God and now we're talking about where we've fallen to that's where we've fallen from this is where we've fallen to so let's talk a little bit about the nature of sin. What, what is this thing we call sin? It is a thing we talk often about. You know, if you're in church enough, I'm, I'm thankful to God that I go to a church where our pastor and our teachers are not ashamed of talking about sin and calling sin, sin. Calling it for what it is. You know, there's a lot of folks, there's a lot of Christians, unfortunately. They're not as willing to talk about sin and address it biblically, address it the way uh, the Bible addresses it. And so we ought to be thankful about that. But now from a more theological perspective, what what is this thing? We, We know what it's like for us to have sin, for us to sin. What is this thing we're calling sin? Well, I find two words that are very helpful in understanding what sin is are these two words, alienation and reconciliation. Now, those are, those are $5 words that need a 5 cent explanation, but but alienation, to be alienated from someone, um, you, you've, you've no doubt probably felt that at some point in time, to be alienated from someone, um, to, to want to be close to someone, but there's just some conflict, there's something between you where you don't have the relationship you ought to have. And hopefully, at some point in time, that relationship gets reconciled, Right? And so framing sin in terms, sinfulness in terms of alienation and reconciliation, I think is really uh, helpful. One way to understand what happened when sin entered God's very good creation is the idea of alienation or estrangement. Being estranged from someone um, can be a very devastating thing, especially when that relationship means a lot to you. Um, There are a lot of folks that, frankly, I wish I was a little closer to than I am right now. But there's just something in that relationship that keeps them at arm's length, that that whether it's on my part or whether it's on their part, we just don't have the relationship that I wish we had. I wish we were a little estranged in that way. Well, you understand that whether that's my situation or your situation, whatever that situation is, anytime we see that estrangement, that alienation, we kind of start connecting the dots backwards a little bit and we find that source of sin. Um, that human sinfulness is the cause of a lot of that estrangement that we feel. God's intention, that, that, that was not God's intent, right? You, you understand that, right? Like knowing the way God created us and the world that God created for us, it was not God's intent that every relationship be so torn apart. But that's what sin did. That, that was the effect of sin. God's intention for humanity was perfect communion with him, each other, and his creation. God, when he made Adam and Eve, he put them in a garden and there was perfect communion, perfect relationship, right? Perfect relationship between them and God, perfect relationship between one another, perfect relationship with the environment around them. It was all perfect communion. Their whole existence was one big perfect relationship. And then sin entered the world and messed all that up, right? And so when we see the effect of sin, there's a rift in that relationship between humanity in God? Because we sin, we offend God by corrupting his image in ourselves and violating his image in others. Now, I don't want to park here too long, but but you got to understand one of the reasons why God takes sin so seriously is because oftentimes when we sin, when we do what we're not supposed to do, when we break one of God's commandments, understand what we're doing to ourselves and what we're doing to other people from God's perspective, right? Now, now you understand a lot of times when we sin against ourselves, against one another, we love to justify that, right? I find that everybody is their own best lawyer, right? You start justifying, you start making excuses, you come up with all sorts of rationalizations. Well, why did you do that? Well, here's my five reasons why. Um, but viewing it from God's perspective, you understand that person that you just lied to, you lied to someone who is an image bearer of God. That person that you just expressed hatred towards... You express hatred towards the image of God. That sin that you're doing to your own body, you you are now marring the image of God. And so while we think we have all excuse in the world from God's perspective, from God's vantage point, he's seeing that, why are you doing that to my image? I tell my students, I teach high schoolers, as Pastor Travis says, and I like to illustrate it this way. I got, I got pictures of my family, as, as any good husband and father ought to have in, in, his, in, in his classroom. And I point over there and say, now listen, if I ever... I, I got pictures all over. I got posters and stuff. You know, I try to decorate, make, make sure my classroom's not boring or whatever. I said, now listen, if you come in and you take a Sharpie and just mark up any one of these posters, I'm going to be a little upset. But if you come over here to my family's picture... And mark on it and draw a mustache on my wife and draw crazy eyes on my kids. We're going to have a problem. A much bigger problem than if you mark up my, my Captain America poster over here. We're going to have a much bigger problem if you mark up my family. Now, have you done any violence to, to my kids and my wife particularly? No. But you've shown disrespect towards an image of them. And so when we sin against ourselves, when we sin against other people and mar the image of God in that way, there is a rift in that relationship. I said I wasn't going to part there too long, but here I am. So so um, also the relationship between humanity, you know, our relationship with one another is not what it ought to be because of sin. We offend others by our pride and our selfishness. Um, you know, theologians have had this historic debate of what the essence of sin is. Like, what's really behind sin? What's really going on? Because you know, there's—it's there's, almost like there's these secondary actions that we have that have a root cause on the inside, right? You know, Eve disobeyed by taking some fruit and eating it, and then Adam did the same, right? But but they weren't hungry. What was that? That was lust. That was pride. That was. Envy, that, that was, you know, and theologians will discuss that there was an inward attitude that they had that came long before the action, right? The attitude preceded the action. And so a lot of times we have arguments, we have conflicts in relationship with one another, but it's because of some sinful attitude that long precedes our actions. And also between us and nature, I'm, I'm very uh, interested in this one, that, that between, human, between humanity and nature, because of sin, the world, has become hostile to our flourishing and we make it either a commodity or an idol. Again, I'm gonna try not to spend too much time here, but you understand Pastor Travis preached a great message this morning on work. Hopefully you were able to hear it, because it was it was wonderful. I um, you know, it was one of those sermons like I try to fill out the notes like I try, I try to, you know, fill in the blanks and everything. That's all well and good. But this was one of those sermons. I had notes on the margin like, you know, it's good when you got when you got to write some extra stuff down. Right. I got to think about this later in the in the week. And and I'm thinking, you know, in terms of work and so on. And work is a very good thing. Work is a very important thing. And some of you y'all are thinking, I, are you kidding me? I hate work. I hate working. I want to lay around. Well, you understand work existed before the fall. Right. Work was a part of our life long before sin was. So work is not a part of the curse. Frustration from work is. You see, after Adam sinned, God looked at him and said, now now you messed it up, son. I I planted a garden where you could just have whatever you needed at any point in time. But now you're going to work. And it's going to be from the sweat of your brow that you're going to eat. It's going to be through frustration and through pain, through struggle and toil, that you're going to work. And so we need to recognize that, that work is a good thing. Work is a wonderful thing. It's the frustration in it that that is the result of sin. And so what do we do? We, we turn the world that God has given us either into a commodity to be used up and just utilized however we see fit, or we turn it into an idol. And boy, you can find just about everybody's attitude and basically put them on one side or the other. What do you think about God's creation? What do you think about the natural world? Some people think it's just something to be used up. at at will not something to be stewarded or taken care of and some people think of it as just like this idol don't touch it we got to worship it it's mother nature etc and 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 so that becomes a very unhealthy relationship and it's all because of sin in other words all i'm driving at is this this uh this helps us understand why throughout the uh, biblical narrative god's plan for salvation is spoken of in the bible as a work of reconciliation You find this wonderful word of reconciliation all throughout scripture that what sin did was was very profoundly rip apart all the perfect relationships that God had built into reality. Sin messed up all of those relationships. And so what does God have to do now in order to fix in order to in order to solve that problem in order to fix that problem of sin? It's all about mending those relationships. Many relationship between us and God, many relationship between us, humanity, and and then ultimately redeeming the whole world. And and again, that's a theological issue for a different theology class. But on to this, what is sin? I think that that frames out our understanding a little bit to now where we can actually give a good definition of sin or at least understand what the Bible's saying when it uses that word. And now the Bible, you, you're probably well aware of this. The Bible has all sorts of words for sin, right? Unrighteousness. Um, uh, um, corruption, like, like there's all sorts of words that are used for sin, and every once in a while you just find that word sin. But there's there's a really important couple of words that are used that 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 give us a, just a clear picture when we understand what the word literally means. The Bible describes sin in many ways, but one of the most frequent descriptions of sin, um, there, there's two words: there's a Hebrew word and a Greek word. The the Hebrew word is chata, and then the Hebrew word is hamartia. And those two words are essentially, they they have the same meaning. Um, And that's fortunate for us because a lot of times you try to dig in these biblical words, they can take you all different directions. But this one, this one's real vivid. This one helps guys like me. When when you give me, I I need an illustration, right? Like I need a picture uh, to to figure out what the Bible is really trying to teach. And and so the, um, the, the idea here comes from archery. I don't know if y'all have ever shot a bow and arrow before, um, but, but it comes from some sort, of, some sort of archery. I think it can be applied to other type range weapon type situations. Um, but it's all about missing the mark. The term literally means to miss the mark. Whether it's in the Old Testament, chata, whether it's in the New Testament, hamartia. Um, it means to miss the mark. In fact, there's this cool passage in the book of Judges um, back when the people of Israel were still going to war and they were battling. They had different battalions and so on. Um, sorry, I'm sorry, I, I was a history teacher for about 10 years, so it comes out every once in a while. Um, but, but these guys had a battalion. There was a battalion in the tribe of Benjamin. Um, they, were, they were snipers, essentially, only they didn't have guns, obviously, back then. They had slingshots. Now, now, sorry, biblical times, slingshot was about as good as it gets. But, but these guys apparently were very talented because there were 700 of these guys who could nail a target of a hair's width. Now, I, I, I thought, no, c- come on, come on. You, you can, the Bible says it. They can nail a target of a hair's width from however many yards out without hataim, without missing the mark. They never missed their mark okay and so when you understand what the bible is trying to illustrate what is sin missing the mark so i don't know like anybody's mind headed where my mind is if sin is missing the mark my next question is going to be what's the mark what what are we missing here which totally makes sense when the apostle paul tells us for all have sinned and fallen short of what mark The the glory of god god's righteousness is, is what puts our sinfulness in context. God's glory is the mark that we have missed. Now, this is so important to understand human sinfulness because let me tell you what, let me tell you what this church kid does. Sorry, I grew up a pastor's kid, and I don't know what that makes you feel about me now. Like, maybe you change your mind. Maybe you can leave at this point. Like, I'm not. Um, if you know anything about pastor's kids, I'm sorry, Pastor Travis, I'm sure yours are perfect. Um, and so, but no, we, uh, we're a rare breed. And, and I'll tell you, I, um, growing up in church, um, it was one of those things where I don't know that I need the gospel as much as you say I need it. Because, I mean, look at this guy, right? Now, I know I'm bad. Nobody's perfect, right? But have you seen them? and and as a pastor's kid growing up in church it's like yeah i'm a i'm a little punk kid that thinks he knows everything and he's gonna you know tell off these people and curse out those people and i don't care i don't care what you think about me because i know how much of a hypocrite these christians are coming to church all the time i know i'm bad but look at them and my frame of reference becomes some other sinner now listen i don't care how bad your situation is we can always find somebody worse but you understand that's not the mark that you've missed it's god's glory that we've all missed. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've missed the mark. What's sin? It's missing God's mark. It's not living up to the righteousness for which God created us. All right, so where does that leave us? Well, missing the mark can happen in one of two ways. Um, and I think this is really, really um, important for us to understand as well. That missing the mark, um, you know, Bible teachers often put it in these terms, that we can have sins of commission, where we actually commit these sins. In other words, we're doing things that God commands us not to do. Uh, By the way, throw in the Ten Commandments here. Um, Throw in Jesus' teaching in, in the Sermon on the Mount when he preached to us that you've heard you're not to commit adultery, but I'm saying don't even look at that woman with lustful intent. You've heard you're not to murder, but I'm saying there's hatred that I want you to get rid of. Don't do that. And then we do it, that's a sin of commission, right? But you know what's even trickier than that? are these sins of omission, things that we omit in our life, things that we're supposed to be doing, but we're not. We look in our lives and we see those gaps missing. And, and I'll tell you, there's a. I think I would have been among those listening to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I would have been among those who were listening thinking, yeah, I haven't killed anybody, so, so I'm good, right? Yeah, but have you loved people? See, I know you haven't done this, but have you done that? And it's those sins of omission that get me, I'm telling you. And so, so it's important to understand both of those dimensions of sin to understand we've all fallen short of that. Um, two more words that help us understand the nature of sin. Um, theologians often use this term privation and negation. I mean, you can probably hear where these words are coming from. To, privation is to be deprived of something, right? Negation is to negate something. So how does that apply to our sin? Our sinfulness um, now characterizes our human nature. It's not just in the acts that we do. Um, it's crucial for us to understand that we, uh, the, the, the old saying goes, um, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. I think I mentioned this earlier, but the nature precedes the action. Right? A lot of times we talk about, well, how many, how many lies does it take to be a liar? Well, I think we got the question backwards. I'm a liar. Therefore, I'm going to lie. I'm, I'm a hateful person. Therefore, I'm going to hate Um the, the nature precedes the action. So let's not let's not walk around and pretend like we're, we're going to talk more about this when we get to um, the idea of original sin. But let's not walk around and pretend like this is something that we just kind of accumulate these actions. And however many more times we do it, that's how many how much more guilty we are. Oh, no, no, no. You, you, you missed the point. We are sinners by nature. We are sinful by nature. And so um, this becomes a part of our, our very nature, our very character. Um, in privation, um, there is a lack of good. We, we have a lack of good. In our sinfulness, we are deprived of holiness and righteousness. Um, how did David say when he, when he looks at me? Or I mean, maybe it was Paul. I'm sorry, I'm getting my biblical authors mixed up. Um, but in me is no good thing. I look at myself and I, just, I don't see anything good. Um, man, I feel that. You ever, you ever been there? You ever been thinking, God, search me. Search my heart. And see if there's any wicked way in me. Um, I'll tell you, I, I rarely get good enough to be able to pray that prayer. See if there's any, any wicked way in me. Of course there's wicked ways in me. That's why I'm praying. I don't, I don't need you to search very far, God, but, but please help me. If anything, just help me root it out. I know that there's a lack of holiness. There's a privation of holiness and righteousness in me. And then on top of that, there's negation. Um, there's a denial of what is good. In our sinfulness, we refuse to seek holiness and righteousness. How Scripture says it, none seek after God. None do what's good. We, we, don't, we don't naturally go after what is good. Um, I have two kids. Uh, my daughter's seven years old. My son is ten years old. And you know, I've taught them many things. And you know, the funny thing is, there's a whole slew of stuff I never had to teach them. Never had to teach them how to take stuff from one another. They just kind of did it. <laughs> never had to teach my son how to lie. He just... New man if I don't come up with an excuse I'm in big time trouble didn't have to teach my daughter how to have a bad attitude did, did just kind of I don't know where it came from I don't know who she got it from but mom uh but no I, I never had to teach my kids that we say they got it by nature they, they don't they don't seek what's good they naturally seek what what is unholy what is unrighteous I guess what I'm getting at is this sin must be defined by the standard which it fails to meet Sin must be defined by the standard it fails to meet. Again, let's not play this game. Well, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not that guy. Well, hold up. He's not the standard. She's not the standard. God is the standard. And so we have to define our sinfulness by the standard that we have failed to meet. We can only understand our unrighteousness by understanding God's righteousness. Listen, if this is the only theology session that you get out of this class you've you've missed some big stuff and and i wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't make any sense at all one because i'm teaching it but two because you need some context your unrighteousness our unrighteousness needs to be put in context of god's righteousness for any of this to make sense all right so moving along um, just so now we we have some idea of the nature of sin um let's talk a little bit about the consequences of sin the transmission of sin and I'm sorry, it's a little bit, uh, it's it's a stretch into future um, into future lessons, uh, but I just couldn't leave you without talking a little bit about the solution to sin. So so let's talk about these the consequences of sin. What comes about in us because of our sinfulness? In order to describe the nature and impact of sin on humanity, theologians have developed this idea of original sin. Now this is um, this this is where the theologians come in and they start giving us these these really helpful ideas these really important terms and there's this term there's this really old term that theologians have used called original sin. Now um, it, it's tricky whenever you're dealing with these big ideas because. Yeah, as long as the idea has been around, which is helpful because there's a lot to be read about it, right? A lot of people have talked about it. A lot of people have tried to figure it out and explain it. But that also means that folks have had time to take it their own direction, right? Kind of take it and run with it and let it mean what they want it to mean. And so it's a, it's a tricky idea, but we want to hug as close to Scripture as we possibly can, see what Scripture has to say about it. Um, original sin, a lot of times the one of the misconceptions people get is that we're, we're referring to the specific moment or the specific instance when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden of Eden, original sin. Well, what was the original sin? That was when Adam and Eve uh, disobeyed God. Well, that's not exactly what the word refers to. It's it, it includes what that term refers to, but that's, that's not the original sin. The original sin is something that all of us have in common. Now, here's what we mean by that. Rather, it describes our sinful condition out of which our sinful actions come. And this is where I got ahead of myself a few minutes ago. Y'all remember when I said that's why that old saying goes, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Nature precedes action. OK, what you are as a person determines how you're going to behave. And what we learn about ourselves as people is that we are unrighteous. Um, how did David say it? In sin, my mother conceived me. That like conception, well, David, you didn't have a chance to do any sin. You haven't offended anybody. You haven't told a lie. You haven't even been born yet. You haven't sinned. Yeah, but long before he ever had the, act, he ever had the opportunity to commit a sin, he was conceived in sin. There was a sinfulness to his very nature. So what's the deal with that? How did that come about? Um, there, there's a theologian that hopefully you've heard about it at some point, um, Augustine. He, he's one of these guys that um, he wrote a long, long time ago, 300s into the 400s AD. Um, but his work, and then, now listen, if we're if he wrote that long ago and we're still talking about him, he had some really important stuff to say, right? And so one of the really helpful ideas that he just kind of spelled out for church history was this this idea of original sin and how it came to be. Now, you'll have to forgive me. My Latin is terrible, but I'm going to throw some Latin terms. I always tell my students, I don't give you these like highfalutin words. I I don't give you these words unless I just, I can't come up with a better way of saying it. And with this particular idea, I just can't come up with a better way of saying it. But Augustine tells us this in terms of Adam and Eve. He he contrasts, he compares us to Adam and Eve, the rest of humanity to Adam and Eve. So, So here's what happened. Adam and Eve were created, as he would say it, posse picare. That sounded so smart, didn't it? P- posse picare with the ability to sin. In other words, Adam and Eve were created, put in the garden, and at that point in time, they had not sinned. They were innocent. They hadn't done nothing wrong, but they had the ability to. Posse picare. You see that, that second word there, pecare? Um, oh, yeah, laser works. Um, this picare here. Have you ever heard the term impeccable? What does the word impeccable mean? It means it has no flaws, right? Just nothing at all. They, they, no sin, and so they were, they were made impeccably. They were made uh, posse picare. They had the ability to have some sin, but they were also made with the ability posse non-pecare. In other words, they had the ability to not sin. So here Adam and Eve, now I know that's a really, that's a really complicated way to explain the position that Adam and Eve were in, but they, they had the ability to either sin or not to sin. Okay. Well, Satterfield, hey, I mean, I got the ability to sin. I got the ability to not sin. Well, that's where Augustine says, well, hold, pump your brakes for a second. Because after the fall, what happened? After the fall, when sin entered into the world, Adam and Eve took on themselves a sinful nature. Because while they had the ability to not sin, they did. And so as Romans 5, we're going to get into Romans 5 in a bit. As Romans 5 tells us, sin entered into the world by way of their disobedient actions. And they took on a nature where they now uh, or where we as humanity are at the fall. Humanity lost posse non picare and became non-posse non picare without the ability to not sin. When my son was born. Um, we brought him to church for the first time. And I don't know, y'all probably do the same thing my church did where whenever a new baby comes in, everybody wants to come see the new baby, um, you know, get your germs all over him and stuff like that. And um, some of my students, they were particularly excited because, uh, you, know, they, they, you know, Mr. Shatterfield says he has a new baby or whatever. They'd run up to come see the baby. And I had one kid that was particularly theologically... I don't know if smart is the right word but he was curious. He he was really interested in biblical ideas and theology and so on. He's like, "Wow, look how innocent this kid is. He hasn't he he hasn't even sinned yet." I was like, "Yeah, I mean, I mean he was crying a lot last night. I don't know what that was about, but um man, I so, so does that mean he's not a sinner?" And I said, "Oh, he, he's a sinner all right." And the kid just why Why would you talk about your son? Look at this baby. It's a little innocent baby. Why would you call this little innocent baby a sinner? Well, because I know his dad. I know his dad. And in the same way that my son has my bright blue eyes, my son also has my corrupted heart. In the same way that he's got my curly blonde hair, he's got my lying tongue. And I had to square with that a long time ago that in the same way I gave my kids my last name, I also gave them my sinful nature. And guess what? Adam, by the way, whose name means mankind, and Eve, whose name means mother of all, of the seed of Adam and Eve, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Long before you had the chance to, you were a sinner. And I'm afraid that we're all born dead in our trespasses and sins, and I'm afraid we're all born non posse non-pacare. We don't even have the ability to not sin in fact um just to continue this downward digression sometimes we live in a way that's in accordance with god's law you ever notice that like sometimes folks you know they they say a broken clock's right at least twice a day right um and every once in a while you see people's actions align with 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 god's law Um, i've seen atheists be very charitable very loving people Um, i've seen people of various other religions do some really remarkable things that I would refer to as being very righteous actions. But there's this verse that, you know, by way of homework, you can go home and spend some time looking at Isaiah 64, 6, because it tells us that even our righteous actions are as filthy garments before God. And boy, you want to take a look at the the Hebrew on that one and see what those those filthy garments were all about. Um, Our righteous deeds. Our righteous acts are, are disgusting to God. Now, how could that be? If I could just take a moment with this, because I struggled with this first for the longest time. How could my righteous deeds still be, be filthy in God's eyes? Well, here's my deal. Um, I like to barbecue. Anybody, can I get an amen? amen. Um, I got a smoker at home, and um, I, I, I don't fancy myself to be any kind of an expert, but I'm trying to be, and I'm working at it because... I love me some good cooking. Anyway, sorry. Um, but let's just say, you know, I, I wanted to apologize for, for a terrible class tonight and for boring you all to death. I'm just going to invite all y'all over to a cookout. Um, don't tell my wife because she will flip her lid knowing that I invited this many people over. But I'm just going to invite all y'all over to a cookout. Awesome. And I don't know if you've ever been in a neighborhood where somebody knows what they're doing is cooking. You ever, you ever roll into the neighborhood when somebody knows what they're doing is cooking? You can smell it a mile out. And it is wonderful. I'm pretty sure that's what heaven's going to smell like. And so you roll in the neighborhood and you saw, oh, that Satterfield's cooking. Oh, boy, I can't wait for this. And you can just smell that aroma and all of a sudden you can start getting a little hungry. And I'm sorry if you haven't eaten dinner yet, but, but you, you start that, you know, your stomach's growling a little bit. You're, you're ready to eat, right? And you roll up to the house and you see me meeting you at the door. And, I mean, I don't know. I, I accumulated quite a bit of trash when I'm cooking. And so I got, I got that garbage bag of post-cooking trash in my hands and... Um, and I meet you at the door, I say oh yeah y'all go on around back I'm gonna follow you I'll show you around and I got that trash bag and and I stumble over something cuz I'm clumsy and that trash falls all over the ground and you see everything my family's been eating the, the past week and how it's just been sitting there getting all moldy you see how I cut my son's hair and I just kind of stuffed the hair clippings in there along with the meat juice of the burgers I've been cooking and just just got it all in there and I mean I don't have any gloves what do I look I don't have any latex I'm just putting that trash back in there bare it just throwing it back in the bag and I walk over and I throw that into the bin and I say, all right, who's ready to eat? Now listen, you know you want me to go wash my hands. And if you're like anybody, you're going to be scanning me and watching me like a hawk. That man better go wash his hands before he touches my burger. That man better not touch my burger without go washing his hands. I don't even really at this point want somebody with that filthy hands touching the spatula that's going to touch my burger. I want you away from my food. That's nasty. Now let's be honest. Does it make it smell any less good? Does, is the taste going to really be altered by how dirty my hands are? But how many of y'all lost your appetite when I told you what was in the trash and consequently what's been in my hands? You see, here's the thing about sin. Good actions are corrupted by dirty hands. And what scripture tells us is we all got dirty hands. We all got filthy hands. So, yeah, we give to charity with filthy hands. We're kind to people with filthy hands. And God says, no, you're missing it. Even your righteousnesses are gross. You need to be clean. So and that's why the life of Christ is so infinitely important. See, this is why we make much of Jesus around here, right? Why Jesus's life was so important. You understand, we're not just saved by Jesus's death. We're saved by Jesus's life. Because when Jesus came, he lived a life that none of us could have lived, namely a sinless one. See, while I'm here teaching you about the sinfulness of humanity, it's all in the context of the sinlessness of Christ. I need to get an amen right there because I know it's theology and I know we're being academic here, but let's put these two big ideas together of what we know about ourselves versus what we know about Christ, that Jesus lived a sinless life. That's what makes it so infinitely important. Remember what I said at the beginning? The fall, you only see how bad it is when you understand from how far we've fallen. All right? So, the transmission of sin. What does this have to do with us? All right? And I'll move quickly through this. In Romans 5, 12-20, Um, Famous last words, moving quickly through this. Uh, Romans 5 is probably like, if I had to, if you forced me, all right, pick your favorite chapter in the Bible, I'm going to end up in Romans 5. Uh, Romans 5 is just so jammed packed. It's just like the climax of Paul's sermons for me. I just, you know, it's just so good, that whole chapter. But in, this, in these few verses here, the Apostle Paul describes how sin came into the world by way of Adam, was passed down through Adam's descendants, and is resolved in the sinless life of Jesus Christ. There's this beautiful verse, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. You see, there's this contrast and comparison Paul's making between Adam and what later Scripture refers to the second Adam. There's something going on here. There's, something, there's a parallel that Scripture is drawing here that something true about Adam is also true about Jesus. Are y'all, are y'all seeing that equation? Okay, so, so what exactly is that? Theologians often refer to this parallel between Adam and Jesus as something called federal headship. Now this is something we know a little bit about just just by living in the United States because our form of government is what we call a representative form of government. And I don't want to get too far into the history teacher again. This started to come out again, but let me put that away, get the Bible teacher back out. Um, this federal headship is the idea that the actions of a representative serve for all those represented. Don't you know that the people in Washington, D.C. and Columbia and various places, what they do because we elected them to their position and they represent us accordingly, what those people do affect all of us. Right. And in the same way, what Adam did in the garden affects all of us. But praise God, what Jesus did on the cross affects all of us. And so there's this federal headship where Paul says, in the same way that sin came into the world and affected all of us and condemnation became of that, so salvation comes by the actions of one. That's what's so beautiful about this poetry that God writes in the narrative of redemption, that what Adam failed to do, and consequently all of us have continued to fail to do, Jesus succeeded. So human sinfulness in contrast with, with, um, with, with Jesus' righteousness. That's what makes Paul's statement here so poetic. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, we're all born into the family of Adam, and so we inherited Adam's sinfulness. If I had to summarize it and really oversimplify it, that's how I would define original sin. Because we were born into Adam's family, Sorry, there's the 90s kid in me again. Because we were born into the family of Adam, we inherited the sinfulness of Adam. Um, It's an inherited thing. Um, Nevertheless, that's also what makes so wonderful that conversation. John, I'm giving you a lot of homework, but go home and read through that conversation Jesus has in John 3 with Nicodemus. Um, And he throws one crazy curveball at him and tells him, marvel not, when I'm telling you, you must be born again. Whoa, 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 I'm an old man. I've already been born. Yeah, into, into the family of Adam and consequently into the sinfulness of Adam. What I'm telling you is you need to be born again. And First John 1, I think it's 19, um, to as many as believed him, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God. You see how all of this comes together understanding our human sinfulness in, in reference to Christ's righteousness. Right, so I'll, I'll close with this. The solution for sin. Again, hopefully we've got some grounding, some understanding. When Scripture tells us about our sinfulness, how deep that runs. When, when when Scripture tells us about our sinfulness, what standard we're appealing to to talk about my sinfulness. My sinfulness, your sinfulness is not in comparison to everybody else's. Nobody's perfect. Yeah, well, that's the problem. <laughs> that's not an excuse. That's the problem. Um, our sinfulness in comparison to God's holiness but thank God also in reference to Christ's righteousness. You see, the problem with all of this is divine justice requires a payment for human sinfulness. Now I know in a crowd this big, some of y'all been in here have been hurt deeply. You've been hurt by people. Um, people have done you wrong. People have done you dirty. And, and one of the most dissatisfying things about it is that they didn't get theirs. Do I have a testimony? Do, do I have a witness? Anybody been there? They didn't get theirs. Um, can I just say that God told us in scripture, my God tells us in scripture that he's going to fight for us because he says, no, 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 don't be mistaken. Vengeance is mine. I will repay Thus saith the Lord. Now, listen, I can get behind a God who's going to fight for me. But what I got to recognize is that I also am an offender. What I got to recognize is, yes, as much as their sin has hurt me in a much, infinite, much, much more infinitely profound way, my sin has hurt God. Yes. And divine justice requires a payment for that sin. There's one thing you got to walk away with knowing about human, human sinfulness <coughs> is that it's got to be paid for. Amen. Payment's got to be made. There's this popular idea, popular misconception that the God in the Old Testament is this malicious, mean, wrathful God while the God of the New Testament is gracious and loving. Um, if y'all were in your gospel groups this morning, y'all talked about the the, the Battle of Jericho, if you can call it a battle, right? Um, Jericho, they marched around and and the city fell. And in the midst of that chaos, all that God's people went in and just, the, how, did, how did Scripture put it? Um, devoted it to destruction or gave it over to destruction. And it's like that that that's harsh like god, god just told him go in don't leave any don't, don't leave any of them just just lay it to waste and you got to be thinking man that's that's rough um but you know something that i thought about in in the middle of all of that yeah that, that's tough but but how many times did god's people march around that city Seven. yeah Yeah. well six times and then and seven times on the seventh day you gotta know the people in jericho knew something was up right Oh, and by, by the way, y'all heard about Rahab, right? Before any of that marching even started, Rahab knew who these people were. And they knew that she knew the God that they served. Do you honestly think that Rahab was privy to information that nobody else in the city knew? See, here's the thing. My thought is that whole city knew who God's people were and consequently who God was. And they still wanted to kill those two spies. And Rahab was the only one with sense enough to say, look, I see what I'm dealing with and I'm going to back off. In other words, before that sin was given over to destruction, that sin was wholeheartedly given over to their own self-destruction, to their own sinfulness. God, in his grace, gave them a long gave, gave them big time heads up. You remember what Rahab was talking about? Rahab knew these were the people of God because of what event? Anybody? Bible, Bible students, Bible scholars? The Red Sea. Well, that was that was chapters ago. God gave them a big time heads up. God gave them six days of warning. God gave them seven more times on that last day. And you got to imagine, God's just thinking, I'm trying to make this easy on you people, and you still want to kill my spies. You still want to destroy my people. All right. See, we get this misunderstanding that the God of the Old Testament, because he lays ruin to cities, that he's any more wrathful, any more vengeful towards sin than he is in the New Testament. But here's the thing the most profound instance of God's wrath, we don't find on any city, we don't even find on ourselves. The most profound instance of God's wrath is poured out on Christ on the cross. Oh, and by the way, it's not like Jerusalem, or it's not like Jericho paying for their own sins. Jesus had no sin to pay for. So what was that death for? It was for my sin and for yours. So we find the most profound, most prolific instance of God's wrath in the New Testament. At the cross, we see God's wrath for our sinfulness poured out on Jesus Christ. But here's what I, would, what I would leave us with. All this sinfulness, all this talk about human sinfulness, probably I think if, if I had to draw one verse in Scripture to talk about human sinfulness, my vote would be for Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. See, that's what this whole lesson is all about. The fact that we are still sinners, right? But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And never have you seen a greater display of God's love than in Jesus dying for us. And the same place where you saw the most profound outpouring of God's wrath is also the most profound presentation of God's love. And that's why I end with this statement, what God in his his righteousness requires, in his love he provides. Human sinfulness has to be paid for, and God paid the price. Thank God for that, right? Well, listen, I really appreciate you listening, and I'm sorry if I went a little longer than I was supposed to, but. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Do you mind if I close in prayer, or do you mind? All right, let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, um, I'm just overwhelmed. Um, What a what a low thing to have to discuss. But but I thank you that your word is so brutally honest. It gives us the honesty that we need. That that there's just something not right with us. There's something not right with the world. And your word, the Bible, is so clear on what that thing is. It's sin. It's our sin. And, and I thank you so much that you're very clear, okay, because of our sin, a price needs to be paid. But God, I thank you. Can't thank you enough that what you and your righteousness required in your love you provided for us in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And I just pray that you would help us as we clarify what we know about our human sinfulness, you would draw us constantly back to the cross to help us understand more of your righteousness and and put that in as the context of our unrighteousness. I thank you so much uh, for for the sacrifice that Jesus paid for all of us, and it's in His name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Equip podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast and get weekly courses delivered to you. We hope to equip you for the work of the ministry.